Hey guys, welcome to the Elsa Kurt Show. I'm your host, Elsa Kurt. Today I have with me Michael Crow. He is from Heroes Comfort, and he's got some really valuable, important information to share with us today, and uh, and a personal story as well. So I'm really looking forward to sharing this with you, Mike. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Elsa, for having me. Absolutely. So if you wouldn't mind, I would love to hear a little bit about your journey of becoming a firefighter and and EMS also, EMT also. And uh, tell me a little bit about what inspired you to to go that path. Well, I'll start with the inspire part with uh, what interests me in doing fire and EMS, um, because that kind of leads into the career itself. Um, So when I was a kid, I lived in a town of about 600 people. And we had the old town whistle that would go off whenever there was a fire or EMS call. And I lived right on the main drag of the town that led to the highway. And when that whistle would go off, I would run out to the street in the middle of the street and watch, you know, all these volunteers fly by. What really got me was the fact that they could skid around the corners. And, you know, that was, that was kind of what initially interested me. But um, I went into the service out of high school, and I was part of the uh, shipboard rescue team. I was in the Navy. And that's really where my interest in at least the healthcare part sparked. Um, So when I did my stint in the Navy, I did a stint in the Army where I became a medic. And then after I got out of the Army, I went to actual EMT school, then paramedic school. So I got my initial EMT in 1992, my paramedic in 1997. Um, I've worked uh, different states. I worked in Topeka, Kansas. I worked in a small community in rural Kansas. Um, And most recently, um, I retired from Newton, Iowa uh, Fire Department um, as a firefighter paramedic. As a paramedic, I never thought that I wanted to run into a fire. I wanted nothing to do with that at all. And until I had a fire at my own home. And then the chief approached me and, and recruited me at the scene of my fire, which is, which is kind of, you know, I, I don't know if that's the best time, but you know what it is, what it is. And it worked out well. So, um, so as a uh, firefighter, paramedic, firefighter of uh, with my paramedic for nine years before I was medically retired with PTSD. Mm, yeah. That's uh, quite a double whammy right there. Yeah. Firefighter and EMT. I mean, that's, that's a lot. It is. Our, our um, department ran on the average of 2,300 ambulance calls a year. Um, and then we did approximately 315 fire calls, 350, somewhere in there. Um, but the ambulance calls really was our bread and butter. And that's, we were all paramedics. Um, so that's what we were expected to do is, is get on the ambulance when that ambulance tone went off. And then if, if the fire tone went off, we got to get on the fire truck. So it was, wow. it was a good time. And yeah, you know, in that line of career, that that career path, there's no predictability. You know, you can have, and, and that's the thing a lot of people don't understand. You could have a quiet day, you could have a quiet morning, and you know, and then the excuse my language, the shit can hit the fan, and you're going from one call to a next potentially with no time in between, really, to decompress, to process. Um, the things that you seen and dealt with and had to handle, which is, um, you know, e- EMT alone, uh, you're dealing with some graphic stuff um, a lot of the times. And I, I can't fathom 
uh, I know I couldn't do the job. So, you know, I always like to take a pause when, when I talk to you guys and just say thank you uh, sincerely because you do a job that I know I couldn't do. I, I couldn't emotionally handle it. I, I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. So thank you so much for, for taking on a, a career and a job that um, takes such an incredible toll on, on the individual. I, I appreciate that. I, I laugh when people say, oh, I couldn't do that because after doing it for 23 years, um, I realized that it became an automatic response mm. and it always went reverted back to training and education. And I, the adrenaline rush is really what pushed me um, for at least for the first dozen years. Mm-hmm. Um, the sounds of the tones going off, getting in the ambulance, screaming down the highway, you know, hopefully making a difference for the patient that called didn't always work out that way, but you know, that's life. But I, I say that, I say that in that, I think, I think a lot of people could do it. I, I really do because that adrenaline gets you focused on what's going on. Um, I don't want to say television because it's a bad word in EMS, but you do kind of get tunnel vision on what's going on mm. so you can fix the problem. Um, so with the right training, I think most people have a helping attitude or helping heart. Um, and I think that they could actually do more than they actually realize that they could. So, I but I thank you for that. Um, yeah. it, it definitely is not for everybody. Um, right. There, you know, there, there were certain calls that, that stuck with me. Um, a lot harder and were harder to get through and harder to process to the point where, you know, they got me retired from the department, not, not willingly. Sure. Um, actually, yeah. go ahead. Okay. No, I was going to say, you know, people don't realize too, you know, it's not just one incident. It, it's uh, cumulative and yep. it, it's that repeated. Um, and, and you're also taught and essentially trained to compartmentalize. And if you're putting things in drawers, you know, in these figurative uh, drawers uh, and not pulling them out and not addressing them ever, you know, this is, you're just adding uh, trauma upon trauma upon trauma and never processing. And I think that's a very common problem um, for first responders, right? Yeah, it it definitely is. And um, I actually you mentioned compartmentalize and that's, I think that's something that we all do as humans to try and get through difficult stuff. I mean, we don't, studies have shown that we don't actually forget everything. It's just the way that they're processed as far as short-term and long-term memory, whether or not we remember them on on a case-by-case basis or, you know, day-by-day. So, um, there's a gentleman by the name of Rob Lethan. He's on, he's all over Facebook. He's a graphic artist, but he's a firefighter as well. And he, he approached me and he asked me if he could draw a rendition of what it sounds like my brain was like. Mm. And I said, sure. And I told him, and it's, it's my head. And then the lid is lifted up. <laughs> um, and there's filing cabinets there, you know, the old big steel filing cabinets of the school's they used to have not the flimsy ones that they do now, but the heavy ones. And those were stuffed with files because we file all of our memories into certain spaces, depending on if we need to retrieve them at a later date. Well, mine was so full, the drawers wouldn't close. The files were hanging out, sticking up all over the floor. 
Um, it was a really great rendition of, of what my mind and my uh, compartmentalization looked like. Mm. So, um, you know, and, and it's, I don't, I'm going to go back to what you said about um, trained to compartmentalize. I don't know that, I don't know that training is really done, or at least when I went through um, paramedic school and, and fire school, that there's really training on mental health, even compartmentalizing or what to do with those memories. I think that's a shortcoming. Um, I know I, I know that's a shortcoming in all the academy trainings and things like that. Yes, there are some departments that are working to implement mental health uh, training into their academies, but by far, uh, it's it's not included, and that's something that needs to change. And that's what we're hoping to stimulate. I love that, and I'm so glad you brought that up because that's a you know that's a frequent conversation um, it, training. And the issue, of course, is that, you know, you can do simulated trainings every day, all day, and it never compares to the real, uh, to the real thing. So you can't really train someone to truly be prepared for what they're going to see and what they're going to have to do and, and deal with on the job. Um, but you're so right. The training needs to come in for the mental health aspect of it. Um, are you seeing a change in that in a broader sense? Like there's, I know there's, there are places that are starting to implement. It's becoming um, more recognized. The need is becoming more recognized. Um, and as you mentioned, Heroes Comfort, uh, what you do is, is addressing that as well. Are you seeing that this is getting implemented more you know, or not uh, enough? Um, that's a great question. Um, I, just here in Iowa, I mean, we're the group, our organization is, we have people in several states. So I can't necessarily speak for those states and their training systems because I haven't seen them. Um, but in talking to people from them and in knowing what I know here in Iowa, um, I can, I can say with confidence that there is a change coming, but it's not a significant change. And it's very, very slow because there still is a huge stigma, uh, even within the ranks of, of PTSD, mental health, um, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm, I'm seeing a little bit, but I think where you're going to see the least movement or the least amount of change or slower change is going to be volunteer departments mm-hmm. because those departments don't get any real academy style training, real sit down training, you know, yes, they, they train their, their recruits to put up ladders and, and things like that and to do the job, but they don't focus on the mental health aspect. And I think part of that is because they're usually smaller communities and everybody knows everybody. And if it gets out that so-and-so struggled with a call, well, everybody in the community is going to know about it, whether you like it or not. Um, so I, I see a little bit, but it's more so in the larger cities. Sure. Yeah, I believe that, Mike, because I, I can tell you from my end of it, in, in the time that I've been doing this, these types of interviews and conversations, um, everyone I've ever spoken to is retired, uh, you know, off the job for one reason or another. Um, and no one on the job as of yet will talk about these issues and it's because they're on the job and the consequences are still there. So that's how, you know, that's really, for me, that's the indicator that we are, we have not come nearly far enough in, uh, in helping our first responders 
Um, and, and, you know, it, it makes me crazy. I have to be honest with you. It makes me so crazy that that is the case because if anyone deserves that type of help and guidance and support, it's our first responders and, and, you know, to have them feel, um, unable to seek help for repercussions and, and effects of the job. And of course, how your, your peers may perceive you or how you think your peers may perceive you. Um, it's just so, it's so sad to me and it's so unfair to you guys. Um, I want to go back, if you don't mind, I want to talk a little bit about, um, PTSD and your experience with that. Um, what I'm always wondering when I, when I talk to you guys about this stuff is when and how did you recognize that you were in crisis or did you have to be told by someone else that you were essentially in crisis? I think that for, for me, I could have been told years before um, I actually realized it. Um, but there again, the stigma sets in and, and, you know, your brother or sister on duty doesn't want to be the one to call you out, you know, out of respect. Um, plus, they don't want to have to hear it because they don't want to deal with it themselves. Um, my opinion is, you know, probably 70% of first responders struggle with some symptoms of PTSD, um, whether they've been diagnosed or not. Um, they're just afraid to admit it. But um, for me, it was it was towards the end of my career. So um, I I was... It was November of 2012 um, when when I finally broke and had to go to my chief and get some time off and FMLA and stuff like that. So it was, you know, 22 years in that I realized it, but I kind of had an inclination that something wasn't right about three years before that at a house fire involving a child and and I, I lost it. I exploded. I started throwing things, punching things, just, uh, I, I, you know, was in a mess. Um, but I, but I compartmentalized that and I stuffed it down as hard as I could and worked the next three years as, as hard as I could to not remember that, but it just, it didn't happen. So it was about, there was a three-year gap for me. Yeah. Um, what were some of the external experiences that, that, um, that you were experienced? How was it affecting? I guess the question I'm asking is how did this affect your home life and your work and all of those things? And I, and I asked this for the family member perspective so that we can learn how to recognize and how to help and how to be supportive when these things are going on, because maybe we don't recognize it. Well, for me, um, it, it took a, a marriage to end and um, uh, all that kind of stuff that comes with it to, to realize the impact that it had on the family. And uh, my wife at the time didn't have any experience with PTSD or mental health, so she didn't understand it all. She just she saw me drinking. Um, she saw me calling in sick a lot to work. Um, she saw me angry with bursts of rage. Um, and when she would try and talk to me about it, I would go off the handle and say, you know, I don't want to effing talk about it. Um, and so I, I, I contributed some to that and, um, eventually the marriage ended and, um, within about, um, six months after that, the career ended. Mm -hmm. 
So mm-hmm. it ties it ties in a lot. And for me, it was I didn't want to bring anybody else into what I was feeling and what I had gone through. I didn't want to talk about the experience primarily because I didn't want to relive it in my head, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to expose anybody else to that as well. So, and that was a mistake. Um, you know, what I should have done and what I did eventually uh, in my second marriage is, is I brought home stuff um, on PTSD and mental health and, and those kind of things for my wife to read. So she could kind of get a, a kind of an understanding. I mean, obviously it's not gonna uh, put her in my shoes, but she'll, she has a better understanding now of, okay, he's withdrawing and isolating. He's probably having some depression issues and et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, and I, I think that that, I think that that if they implemented that in training um, and then said, Hey, take these, this stuff home, share it with your significant other, whoever that is, and prepare them that you're going to see some bad things. You're going to have to process those. And there's certain ways that you're going to process them, but recognize warning signs like the heavy drinking, um, the isolation, um, recognize those warning signs, but also understand that if, if your partner doesn't, isn't able to talk about it, it's, it's okay. Um, you know, um, so yeah. Yeah. I, you know, everything you said, I I agree with uh, so completely. And I, and I think it's so critically important for family members, the loved ones, uh, spouses, partners, significant others, however you want to phrase it. Um, it's so important for us to essentially get training as well. And, and in exactly the way that you're talking about, give us, you know, we need the information to know how to recognize, um, how to help, how to manage, how to, you know, how to be kind of, you know, we talk about in our household in, in early days, we talked about, uh, home basically being the, the haven home is the haven. This is the place you come to where you are, um, you know, completely safe, completely protected and loved and appreciating, you know, and all of those things and fostering um, that strong home environment where our first responder spouses um, have that peace where they can choose to either talk or not talk. You know, we always have, I've said it many times before, um, you know, we always kind of had a thing where if it was a rough day, if it was a bad day, you know, the question would be, um, do you want, do you want conversation, silence, or distraction? And, you know, whichever one the case was, that's, that's what, that's what he got. And at some point, you know, we would talk about it when he was ready to. So finding that uh, balance, I think is really important in learning um, those tools and those skills is so important. Um, talk to me a little bit about how uh hero's comfort came about. Sure. Um, so, excuse me, uh, during the pandemic, I got on Facebook and met some other firefighters and uh, had similar interests and beliefs that I do. And, and a couple of us started a Facebook message group and, and uh, we did some Bible study and some, just, just some general talking and support of one another. And I noticed that more people were wanting to join. So I thought, well, let's make this a group. We made it a private group. Um, so not anybody could just get in there and see what we're talking about. And about another six months rolled by and we've got more and more members. And uh, I just felt it in my heart that I was supposed to do more with this because I was really getting a lot out of it. And I felt like I was helping people. Um, so we decided to 
actually form an organization and get incorporated. So we operated for a little bit without our nonprofit status until we got it. We got that in February of 2021. And since then, we've grown to about 300 members and we're in, uh, I think, seven states, six or seven states right now with members um, throughout the country. Um, And uh, we provide peer support and we've also arranged with providers in each of those seven states uh, to perform uh, free therapy uh, for the first responders that we refer to them. And um, I know of a couple that have actually used that. Other than that, it's pretty quiet about it. You know, we'll, we'll give out the information and then that's all we do. We, we don't want to stay involved in it because it's just, it's just not right. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we award service animals, which we're awarding here in another couple of weeks. We're ordering, we're awarding another one to an individual in another state. Um, we do, we have a, a toll-free support line. I don't call it a hotline because it's, it's not any professional counseling. It's just peers that have volunteered with our organization to take calls at all hours of the day or night to just to support somebody that needs some help. That is so vastly important, uh, the peer support part of that, because, I, I, you know, I know from all the conversations that I've had, um, that is one of the issues going to someone who has, and it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Going to someone who cannot relate to your experience, who's never experienced them, it's really hard to get them to understand. So um, having, you know, for you guys to be able to speak with someone who knows exactly what you're experiencing, um, it's invaluable, right? It's it's just, it's got to be such a tremendous relief to hear that voice on the other line who says, I know, I know, you know, go ahead, tell your story. You're not going to tell me anything that I haven't heard or experienced or, or know about. So go ahead. And I can only imagine the relief in that really. There is a huge sense of relief and just a little background on my process. I didn't have anybody like that. There were no resources really that I, that I knew about anyway, that, that provided peer support back in 2012, 2013. So it was hard to find somebody to talk to that understood. And then you couple that with the fact that um, I didn't know what a trauma trained therapist was. You know, I I thought a therapist was a therapist. Um, So I went to therapy. I went through a couple of different therapists because they just didn't understand it. They just didn't, they didn't get it because they, number one, they've never been there. Number two, they haven't been, you know, trained for that kind of stuff. Usually it was more about, so tell me about your worst call. You know, that, and that's not what we're there for. We're there for help with dealing with our, our um, mental health and our anxiety and our depression and our anger and those kind of things. Again, I, I just, it, I think it is a sense of help. Um, I've, I've talked to several people that have on the hotline or the support line myself, and I can, I can hear the sense of need. And then by the time the call is done, you know, they're usually, thank you so much. You've really helped. And that sense of help just—that's yeah, it's life-changing. It's it life-changing, absolutely, and in the best possible way. And 
uh, it's so gratifying to hear that people like you and your organization are out there doing these things. And, you know, of course, it's, it's long overdue, certainly, but, you know, I see the tide turning and it, it takes people like you who are willing to to do that and 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 to share your personal experiences because you're you know you're essentially opening a wound you know for everyone to peer inside of and it goes against every bit of uh you know nature as a first responder as a firefighter as a emt you know people who compartmentalize and um, protect others not only protect and save others um from danger from from bad experiences but you also protect them from your own experiences. And so that's the isolation really that you're so busy being the uh, protector that no one is protecting you until now. So this is uh, such an incredible service you guys are providing. Oh, thank you. I, I, like I said, I think it's a calling and it's definitely me, definitely a way for me to give back to those brothers and sisters in whatever uniform, because we, we provide services to first responders dispatchers, corrections officers, veterans, ER and ICU nurses and doctors. Um, so we, we try to involve everybody that's, that would be potentially involved in, say, a specific call where we respond, law enforcement responds. Um, we send them on to the, the hospital and the ER. They go on to IC. You know, so we try to, we try to help everybody involved. Um, and, uh, yeah, so... That's beautiful. Um, how can everyone find Heroes Comfort? How can they get in touch with you guys? Uh, we are on the web at www.heroescomfort.org. We're also on Facebook. Um, if you search for Community Support Heroes Comfort, you'll find our public page. We're on Instagram at Heroes Comfort. Um, we are also have our closed group. If any first responder wants to, uh, you know, just dive in and see. I mean, we have people on there that really don't interact per se, but I know that people are getting the information we're putting out there. So if anybody's interested in that, it's just search Facebook for Heroes Comfort closed group. Um, we also have a toll-free number. It's 844-443-7671. That number is answered 24 hours a day. That's incredible. Uh, Mike, I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing your story and sharing your organization with us and our listeners. And um, again, I thank you for the work that you're doing. It's it's pretty wonderful. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime. All right, guys, this was the Elsa Kurt show. That was Mike Crow from Heroes Comfort. Go check them out and pass them along to anyone that you know that might be in need right now. Take care, guys. We'll see you in the next episode.